Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Luis Calderon, and I'm a hospitalist at MedStar Washington Hospital Center Heart and Vascular Institute practicing with an advanced heart failure and transplant program. Prior to me getting my medical degree, I was an ICU nurse while active duty in the U.S. Navy. So I just want to give a shout out to all my fellow nurses who work hard to elevate our patient care. I'm also proud to be a Cardio Nerds Academy Fellow in House Tossic, as in the legendary Dr. Helen Tossic. Folks, thanks for joining us on this Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise. We'll make several key stops along this comprehensive circular journey. At the last stop in episode 111, we learned about normal pregnancy physiology with Dr. Garima Sharma. Our next protocol is at Vanderbilt University, where we'll learn about pregnancy, heart failure, and peripartum cardiomyopathy from Dr. Julie Damp. We want to thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures, and there are no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Stay tuned for a special message about cardioobstetrics and women heart. Hi, everyone. This is Natalie Stokes, one of the FIT co-chairs for the Cardio Nerds Cardioobstetrics series. I am really excited to be back for yet another wonderful edition of this Cardio B series. Today, the focus is talking about a very special population of women affected by peripartum cardiomyopathy. We have a great crew who's going to be walking us through the ins and outs of peripartum cardiomyopathy. I'll start first by introducing our two fellow guides for the episode. First, we have Loie Farina. She's a second-year cardiology fellow at Northwestern. She's planning on going into advanced heart failure and transplant, and she has a special interest in heart disease in women. Welcome, Loie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation. And I am also delighted to introduce my good friend and co-chief at UPMC, Dr. Agnes Kokso. She is a former UPMC resident and chief resident and now UPMC fellow and has an interest in cardio-obstetrics. Welcome, Agnes. Thank you so much, Natalie. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And who better to join us than Dr. Julie Dam, who's one of the members of the Peripartum Network and a site investigator for the IPAC registry, which is the largest registry for women in the U.S. with peripartum cardiomyopathy, or PPCM, as we'll refer to it later. We can talk about this awesome registry and all the information it's provided at a later time. First, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Julie Damp, who is Program Director of the Cardiology Fellowship at Vanderbilt University. She has particular expertise in medical education and women's cardiology, which makes her an exceptional expert for this presentation. Dr. Damp, thank you so much for lending your time and knowledge to us today. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how excited I am to join this amazing group today and for us to spend some time thinking about this really interesting and unique group of women. Awesome, Dr. Damp. It's getting quite chilly up here in Pittsburgh where Natalie and I am at. How are things down in Nashville? Well, as usual, it's actually very nice. We are a high of about 50 today. It's sunny. So this is perfect, typical winter weather for us. <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, I was going to say. <laughs> and I'm actually not making that up. <laughs> you know, the rest of us, I'm in Cleveland here. Louie is in Chicago. So In Chicago, it is I'm single digits and blizzarding. So <laughs> I think yeah. that you have the right choice of 
place to live in Nashville. No, we did actually have a snow flurry last this past, was that Friday? I can't remember what day, you know, and it's so hilarious. I mean, everyone gets so excited and you guys who are used to snow would just laugh if you saw it. I mean, it's like literally you can still see the grass. It's just like white. It's like somebody sprinkled some like white powder dust just a little bit. I'd take the good weather, but you know. <laughs> Anyways, we're digressing. So Dr. Damp, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in cardio obstetrics? Yeah, of course. I think similar to lots of us that are interested in this area, I was initially inspired by a patient. When I was a fellow, I took care of a patient in our cardiovascular ICU with PPCM, and I just really became fascinated with the effects of pregnancy on the cardiovascular system. And, you know, it was one of those things where the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And that's usually a really good sign about something that's going to become a long-term passion for you. These patients really have such unique presentations. They've got really unique concerns. And I was really lucky to train at a place that had really robust multidisciplinary teams that allowed me to see a broad spectrum of pregnancy impacted by cardiac disease and cardiac disease impacted by pregnancy. And I just have to add in as well, because I have been teased about this quite a bit over the years, but I had my first child when I was in fellowship. And so that was another reason why it was really fascinating for me to think about the hemodynamic changes that were happening in pregnancy. And so that might have led to some of my interest as well. That's awesome to hear, Dr. Damp. I think we have similar stories. In fact, I wanted to tell you about an interesting patient, too, that I actually saw in the cardiac ICU. And I was hoping to get your advice on working through this really complex patient I saw. So she's a 28-year-old. She presented to the emergency department at 34 weeks of gestation with shortness of breath and, quote, feeling like my heart is racing and I'm running a marathon. She had a history of peripartum cardiomyopathy with her last pregnancy, and she was lost to follow up in the postpartum setting. She did not seek prenatal care with this pregnancy. Her blood pressure in the emergency department was 95 over 67. Her heart rate was in the 120s in sinus tachycardia when she came. Her SATs were about 99% on room air. Given her past history and vitals, she was transferred to our ICU. As we approached to examine her, I could tell my resident sort of approached her with some trepidation that I think a lot of us feel as we don't commonly manage pregnant patients. Dr. Damp, any tips on managing the exam for pregnant patients? Yes, you know, it is really normal to feel some hesitancy about evaluating and managing pregnant patients because this is not the typical patient that we see in internal medicine residency or cardiology training. So the first thing to do is to take a deep breath and just remember that you know how to do this. It is so important to remember that a pregnant patient is worrying about both herself and baby. And so leaning back into a lot of our standard good practices is especially important. So you want to establish a quick connection, try to put them at ease as much as you can, make sure to explain and communicate what you're doing and why. And then, of course, be careful to respect their modesty. And as patients progress through pregnancy, they may not be as comfortable lying or sitting or situating themselves in every position that we typically put a patient in. So again, just communicating through the exam is really important. Awesome. Thanks for that, Dr. Damp. So on physical exam, she was noted to have lower extremity edema and elevated JVP. So as women progress toward the end of normal pregnancy, they can display features that resemble that of heart failure. I think some knowledge of physiologic changes and when they occur during pregnancy can be useful when examining these patients. Yeah, and like so many things in medicine, differentiating normal from abnormal is so key and might be very challenging, particularly in these settings, like where pregnancy normally comes with signs and symptoms that 
we might consider to be abnormal. So Dr. Damp, do you have any tips and tricks for distinguishing normal and abnormal? And how does the timing of symptoms factor in? Given her history, I'm sure everyone was very concerned about peripartum cardiomyopathy. Yeah, you know, this is one of the trickiest things in evaluating a pregnant patient. As you all remember in pregnancy, intravascular volume, cardiac output, and heart rate all increase, systemic vascular resistance, and blood pressure lower. And these changes start really early in the first trimester and rapidly escalate and then plateau in that second trimester. Then again, near the end of pregnancy, and particularly during labor and delivery, there's an additional substantial increase in cardiac output. A lot of volume displacement and changes in blood pressure and heart rate can occur during the process um, of labor and delivery. So as a result of these hemodynamic changes and the mechanics of the enlarging uterus, on physical exam, pregnant patients can have things that we may typically associate with heart failure. They can have basal rails that usually clear with cough. They have, may have a bounding PMI and a bounding pulse. Jugular venous distension and S3 can be appreciated. Patients frequently have a systolic murmur. They may have edema. Their heart rate may elevate. These patients may feel short of breath. They may have exertional fatigue, lower extremity edema, or thotnea palpitations. And it can be so challenging to distinguish all of these symptoms from those that are coming from cardiac disease. So one thing I always keep in mind is severity. The more pronounced a finding or symptom is, then the more concerning. Another thing I keep in mind is the combination of signs and symptoms. So I may think a little bit differently about a patient who has isolated mild lower extremity edema and otherwise feels okay compared to a patient who has significant lower extremity edema along with significant dyspnea and rails and an S3. Another thing that I try to do is ask patients who've had a prior pregnancy to compare how they're feeling to how they felt with a prior pregnancy because that can be really helpful as well. And as you mentioned, the timing of symptoms is important to consider. For patients with underlying cardiac disease, they may start to develop symptoms earlier in the pregnancy as those early hemodynamic changes begin. And it's important to note that patients with PPCM often, I mean, the majority of them present after delivery. And so that's another feature of timing that can be important to help guide you with symptom onset. And in this patient, of course, we don't actually know whether she fully recovered her cardiac function after her last episode of PPCM. Dr. Dan, thanks for going over the nuances of differentiating signs and symptoms associated with normal, healthy pregnancy with those more indicative of heart failure. Sounds like it can be quite subtle indeed. But once you do have a patient with heart failure, how do we define peripartum cardiomyopathy and how do we distinguish this from somebody who may actually have pre-existing non-ischemic cardiomyopathies? A great question and another challenge. PPCM is defined, as we know, as an LVEF less than 45% that's found towards the end of pregnancy or in the months following delivery, importantly, when no other cause for the cardiomyopathy is found. An exact window of diagnosis used to be part of that definition historically, but this has been changed as we've learned more about the spectrum of presentations with these patients. Distinguishing PPCM from other cardiomyopathies can be difficult, and using this timing we talked about is important. So the earlier patients present, the more likely that their condition may have been pre-existing. Unfortunately, we don't often have complete information about prior medical history, including prior LVEF assessments. And we do suspect that PPCM may be underdiagnosed, especially with milder presentations, as these symptoms and signs may not be recognized as pathologic. Some keys are a careful medical history that includes an obstetric history, childhood medical history, history of substance use, and of course, the patient's family history as well. So interesting. So it sounds like knowledge of the physiologic changes during pregnancy and during delivery can be helpful when conceptualizing that while patients with a pre-existing cardiomyopathy 
will most likely present antepartum or during pregnancy. Most patients with PPCM will actually present postpartum. Yeah, so before we get to management, let's talk about initiating some workup and imaging for her. So if this is a pregnancy-associated problem, I'm still finding the concept of this being invoked by pregnancy a bit confusing. Dr. Dam, how do we know or what do we know about the mechanisms that cause PPCM? We are taking care of these patients in such an exciting time when we're learning more and more about potential mechanisms. There have been lots of possibilities considered, such as myocarditis, autoimmune disorders, maladaptive responses to these hemodynamic changes of pregnancy that we talked about, among others, in the past. But more recently, there have been two mouse models that have shown us some really intriguing things. One is a knockout of cardiac STAT-3 and the other of PGC1A. These both are involved in pathways that have important emphasis on oxidative stress and vascular effects, which are mediated through prolactin, and in the case of PGC1A, also VEGF. The dysregulated pathways in these knockout mice allow increased deleterious vascular effects to occur via preference for the vascularly sinister 16 kilodalton prolactin fragment and lower levels of VEGF. They develop PPCM that can be reversed with delivery of a medication that inhibits prolactin secretion or, in the case of PGC1A, this medication along with VEGF. There's also some data suggesting that levels of other mediators of these pathways may be associated with prognosis in patients with PPCM. For example, SFLT1, which inhibits VEGF, has shown to be associated with a worse prognosis when patients have higher levels at the time of presentation. And relaxin, which is mediated by VEGF, has been shown to be associated with better two-month LVF numbers with higher levels. So there's mounting evidence that PPCM is at least in part a vascular process. That's so fascinating. Are there biomarkers of pregnancy, perhaps like soluble FLIT to the placental growth factor ratio used to predict preeclampsia? Or I also heard something about prolactin being important to pathogenesis. Can drawing these a diagnosis be helpful? Anything specific I should be ordering in lab work? So not yet. Although there's mounting evidence that PPCM may be vascularly driven, we don't yet have a specific enough marker or a detailed enough understanding of these ratios to use these in diagnosis. That makes so much sense, Dr. Dam. So it sounds like we're not quite ready for prime time in terms of specific biomarkers to draw. It sounds like based on definition, there are no echo parameters that distinguish this from non-ischemic carbonyl, including that the LV can be dilated or not, and the RV may or may not be involved. Is that right? That's exactly right, Dan. So actually, in the case of our patient, she had an echo obtained that noted a severely dilated left ventricle, an EF of 15 to 20%, and mildly decreased RV function. In addition to volume overload, she was noted to be cool in her lower extremities, and she also had elevated lactate and acute kidney injury on labs. Given this, there was concern she was in cardiogenic shock on presentation. Oh, goodness. Cardiogenic shock is complicated enough without pregnancy. Dr. Damp, any specific precautions we need to take regarding inotropic support or mechanical support in a pregnant population or that's been published in PPCM patients? Well, you know, our usual inotropic medication can be used in pregnant patients. Regarding mechanical support, there have been case series of successful use, anti, peri, and postpartum in PPCM patients. With ECMO in particular, pregnant patients in general tend to have better outcomes than other patients who require this type of support. And this difference is even more pronounced if you look at pregnant patients with a cardiac cause of their decompensation. 
those patients' survival approaches about 80% and their fetal survival about 65% of that support happens during pregnancy. The complications to think about are similar in general to those in non-pregnant patients, although thinking about the timing of initiating support, the timing of delivery if needed, the mode of access, and bleeding may be a little more complex in these patients. It's very important that this discussion happens amongst multidisciplinary teams that are caring for the patient. Yeah, it sounds like the multidisciplinary team approach is really important. And that's really what happened for this patient as well. So she was started empirically on milrinone and diuresis, and luckily she was stabilized via those methods alone. But of course, there was a meeting with OBGYN and a discussion to deliver her via C-section was made in the operating room with CT surgery and VA ECMO on standby. Yeah, you know, it's so great to have a specialized, multidisciplinary cardio-OB heart team, especially given the complexities involved with the important decisions at hand. And as part of the series, we'll have a separate episode specifically to discuss the role of this interdisciplinary team decision-making in the context of critical care cardio-OB. But Dr. Dam, what considerations go into the timing and mode of delivery for patients with acute decompensated heart failure? Great question. And really, the hemodynamic stability of the patient is the first thing to impact timing and mode of delivery. If you are in a situation where you're able to medically stabilize a patient, then this may slow the timing a little bit and allow some discussions to happen about mode of delivery. But in a decompensated patient for whom delivery is urgent, that needs to move forward and move forward by C-section. And as we've been talking about, it's just so important that in whatever time you have to plan, that all the teams involved, and that would include cardiology, including maybe ACHD, depending on the specific patient, maternal fetal medicine, anesthesia, which may be cardiac and OB anesthesia, CT surgery, and very importantly, the NICU team are part of the discussion and planning, and that everyone is prepared for any potential scenarios regarding need for cannulation or airway management. Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Dam. So thankfully, our patient safely delivered two days later. She was briefly admitted to the CTICU for close monitoring. And then once on step down, we were faced with initiating goal-directed medical therapy. So I know most of us know to avoid ACEs and ARBs in pregnancy, but what's the data on goal-directed medical therapy in pregnancy? And what about if our patient is breastfeeding? Yes, again, another great question. So some of our medical tools, as you mentioned, are contraindicated in pregnancy, including ACE inhibitors, ARBs, as well as aldosterone antagonists. We do, however, have many of our usual medications that we can use, and those include beta blockers, really except atenolol. We can use hydralazine, long-acting nitrates, loop diuretics, and digoxin. In breastfeeding, we really have access to most of our therapies. Enalapril is our preferred ACE inhibitor for use, and metoprolol or curvetolol, the preferred beta blocker, and both of those are really based just on our data with experience over time. We can also, in breastfeeding, use spironolactone, hydralazine, long-acting nitrates, loop diuretics, and digoxin as well. So Dr. Damp, you know, breastfeeding is such an important part of the birthing process for so many women. And so if we do have a patient that is very much interested in breastfeeding, how do we counsel her about these medications? I really try to start with learning what her ideal goals and wishes are around breastfeeding. We can then be kind of together on that same platform and use that to talk about risk benefits of these medications that we may be recommending and monitoring strategies that we would use for her and for baby. I love that approach, Dr. Damp. And since we're on the topic of breastfeeding, I wanted to touch on a topic that's being hotly debated in the PPCM literature regarding the use of bromocryptine for treatment that we discussed earlier. 
So while the etiology of this disorder remains unknown, there's some suspicion that the nursing hormone prolactin, which is released by the pituitary gland, plays a central role in pathogenesis. And there's been a number of studies internationally done to test whether bromocryptine, which blocks the pituitary release of prolactin, is beneficial for myocardial recovery as well as clinical outcomes. An obvious consequence of this therapy, right, is that it inhibits lactation and prohibits the act of breastfeeding making it a very controversial therapy. It's also found to have some procoagulable consequences, so we have to put these patients on anticoagulation as well. Dr. Dam, what is your stance on the use of bromocryptine, and do you think it has a role in the treatment of this condition? So while you guys are really asking me on the record to get off the fence on this one, so this is an issue that continues to generate controversy for all the reasons that you just mentioned, Agnes. There are some data suggesting better outcomes with bromocryptine use, although there have been concerns about the generalizability of that data, particularly to our U.S. PPCM population. That being said, until we know more, the data we have is compelling that it may be beneficial for patients at the highest risk, and there may be a role for patients, particularly that present with more severe disease or other factors that would suggest to us that they may have a worse prognosis. And this is another place where communication about what is known, what is not known, risk benefits, and monitoring is key to have with the patient. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dr. Damp. There is an upcoming multicenter randomized controlled trial called Rebirth, which is hoping to address this question in the U.S. PPCM population. So hopefully this might give us some more clarity on the issue. Yeah, more data will definitely be helpful. But I do have a question, Dr. Damp. If prolactin is involved in the pathogenesis of peripartum cardiomyopathy, and if breastfeeding increases prolactin release, then shouldn't we be discouraging breastfeeding? And, you know, to be honest, I can only say that out loud at home right now because my wife is not home. She's on call tonight. And as a NICU fellow, she is a very strong supporter of uh, the Breast is Best campaign by the WHO. So seriously, breastfeeding does have so many benefits. How do we counsel patients with regards to this decision? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this. There is no signal in available data that breastfeeding is detrimental to PPCM patients. And that's, of course, in patients that are not being given brevacryptine. And of course, we know there are many well-known benefits, as you said, to baby, and there may be physical and emotional benefits to mom as well. But this is one of those situations where, for me, understanding what a woman's goals and wishes are and understanding those can be impacted by many personal, cultural, and socioeconomic factors, that is so important and then allows me to try to support those up as best I can. I can honestly say that in my practice, I've never counseled a woman with compensated heart failure who wanted to breastfeed against it. It is worth noting, of course, too, that this needs to be incorporated into volume counseling as we talk to people about fluid restrictions. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Dam. I think that advice is so helpful. So in fact, I was talking to her family afterwards, and they had a lot of questions for me, and understandably so. I think this disorder is very emotionally charged because it's a condition affecting young women and associated with pregnancy. And so families often wonder if this is hereditary. You know, would my other family members have similar problems with pregnancy? So Dr. Damp, do you know if there's some genetic signal to this disorder? And how do you counsel patients and their families about this? Yes, there are genetic signals. And this is something that it's really easy to let slip by in counseling patients early through their course. There's known familial clustering of PPCM as well as familial clustering with PPCM and dilated cardiomyopathy. And it's been shown there are about 15% prevalence of truncating variants that are associated with dilated cardiomyopathy in PPCM patients. 
about two-thirds of those are of the TTN gene, which encodes for the sarcomere protein Titan. And having this is associated with a lower LVEF at 12 months in PPCM patients. To think about this in a given patient, it's important to take a complete family history. And I use that information to try to identify patients and then discuss genetic counseling testing with them. I also ask patients to make sure other family members, particularly those of childbearing age or those with children, know this patient's diagnosis. I see. That's super interesting, Dr. Damp. Are there other factors associated with peripartum cardiomyopathy, particularly any modifiable ones? Yes, about half of patients with PPCM are greater than 30 years old, and the risk increases with age. There's significant overlap with preeclampsia and other types of hypertensive disease in pregnancy. Multifetal pregnancies are a risk factor, as is being of African descent. It sounds like most of the risk factors are not modifiable, and there's not much that goes towards the prevention of this disorder, unfortunately. Can you speak a little bit more about population demographics from peripartum cardiomyopathy? Does it tell us anything about this disease? Interestingly, globally, we know there are regions of much higher incidence, including Haiti and areas in Nigeria. And in the United States, there are regions with significantly higher incidence as well. For instance, Memphis, Chicago, Augusta, Georgia have all had those higher incidence reported. And this raises lots of questions about genetic, environmental, socioeconomic factors and their impact on risk. And I think what it tells us about the disease is that we still have a lot to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So getting back to our case, so our patient successfully made it through delivery, but I think that gets at a very important juncture in her care, which is really preparing the patient for the months ahead in terms of what to expect with recovery of her cardiac function, any complications, and then really future pregnancies, which is a lot of discussion. First, how do we set up their postpartum care? Say they are diagnosed right after delivery. Yeah, this period transition of care is so critical as it is for all of our hospitalized uh, patients with heart failure and other cardiac diseases. I have dedicated clinics for cardioobstetrics patients, some of which are combined with our maternal fetal medicine faculty. And this provides a great structure to transition these patients to outpatient care and allows it to easily be coordinated with OB as well. And I will say that ideally getting a patient with any type of cardiac disease or at risk for cardiac disease into those clinics prior to pregnancy or prior to delivery is ideal. I'm sure at the first visit, there's a lot of anxiety and anticipation about what those follow-up echoes are going to show. What factors do you look for to predict EF recovery? And what kind of time frame do you give your patients to see that improvement? Yeah, there are some factors to look for that are associated with the likelihood of recovery of LV function. And those include degree of the LV systolic dysfunction, whether the LV is dilated or not, whether the RV is involved, the patient being of African descent. In the IPAC trial, for instance, none of the patients that had both an LVEF less than 30% and an LV greater than 6 centimeters at presentation recovered to a normal LVEF. Patients who had one of these had a 62% chance of recovery, and those with neither had a 90% chance of recovery. So these factors can be really helpful in talking about prognosis with individual patients. Regarding timing, we see some patients with early improvement, and most will have recovered if they're going to recover by the six-months mark. But it is really important to know that patients can have recovery at 12 months or later. Got it. Thank you, Dr. Dan. I know discussion about follow-up pregnancies can be difficult, having had many in our women's cardiology clinic. As you mentioned, women without recovered ejection fractions have a high risk of recurrent PPCM and complications in subsequent pregnancies. When do you feel is the best time to counsel them about future pregnancies? 
And really, who do you think should take ownership for that? This discussion should start very early and be ongoing. The importance of LVEF recovery on risk of future pregnancies is something patients should know from the very start so that we all understand the importance of allowing this window of our medical therapy and waiting for our assessment for recovery to happen prior to another pregnancy. Regarding ownership, this is for us as cardiologists to lead in conjunction with our MFM colleagues, of course. And given that we know this data and disease best, we're the right ones to lead these conversations with patients. A very important part of this discussion is to ensure a contraception plan is in place for every patient. And this is something we're not used to thinking about as cardiologists, but so critical in these patients, along with all the young women patients that we see with any type of cardiac disease. Yeah. So Dr. Damp, this is really challenging. It's, you know, it's easy to show the patients the risks and discuss these things, but do you have like a best practice or best advice towards counseling patients with history of peripartic cardiomyopathy, particularly if they want to have more children and feel very strongly about that? And then also, would your recommendations change based on the postpartum trajectory and recovery of the patient? Is there a way that you tailor it to the particular patient in front of you? Yeah, you know, similar to how we talked about breastfeeding, I start this type of conversation with doing my best to understand a patient's goals and wishes and what's motivating those. This is such a personal issue for a patient and their family, and understanding those things as best I can really helps me to communicate with them more effectively. Importantly, I never tell a patient in this situation what to do, but I try to support them in their decision-making and provide them with information to make those decisions. I talk to them about what we know on how recovery of LVF impacts the risk we would anticipate in a future pregnancy for them. If their LVF has not recovered prior to the future pregnancy, then their risk of worsening heart failure and death, among other things, are significantly worse. I wonder about primary prevention of sudden cardiac death in those patients who have a significantly reduced LVEF. On the one hand, an intravenous device is not without complications, especially uh, in patients who are very young and many will hopefully have EF recovery. On the other hand, a preventable sudden cardiac death would be extremely tragic. What is your approach to primary prevention ICD in this setting? I do wait until the end of the window when we would expect recovery prior to referring for assessment for primary prevention ICD. These patients do have such a high incidence of recovery in general that we have to think about them a little differently than other types of chronic LV dysfunction. That being said, I may start this discussion earlier with a patient that has these risk factors we talked about that suggest lower likelihood of recovery. Another thing to consider are wearable defibrillators because these can be an option while we wait, particularly in these patients with more severe disease. Data on this is a bit variable, anywhere from 0 to 12% of appropriate treatment of events in these patients. But it's certainly reasonable to think about in patients that have risk factors for lower likelihood of recovery. It is important to remember some specific concerns with wearable defibrillators for this group, such as logistics if they are breastfeeding or concerns about whether or not they can hold baby while wearing it. Wow, that's really interesting, Dr. Damp. The thought of you know the logistics of breastfeeding while wearing a wearable defibrillator hadn't even occurred to me. But you know, another question that comes up in these patients is that of starting and continuing goal-directed medical therapy for decreased ejection fraction. And you know, as we all know, GDMT can add a lot of meds. And I often wonder how patients can remember to take so many, which may be particularly challenging for these patients who are often young and haven't been in the habit of needing to take medication. But of course, on the other hand, it's hard to argue with the survival benefit and potentially functional benefit that these medication can get for our patients. So does this benefit extend to patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy whose EF has recovered? And what's your approach to GDMT in the long run? 
Yeah, this is another great question, an area where we're still learning what is best. And honestly, we don't have a lot of data on this yet to, to inform us. For patients that did not recover LV function, of course, these medications are continued indefinitely along with additional heart failure regimen titration as indicated. For those that do recover, I continue these for at least a year and frequently up to two years. And I typically withdraw the medications sequentially with close monitoring through that process. That's great advice. Thank you so much. We've covered a ton here today. To summarize, what do you think are the three major takeaway points about PBCM that every cardiologist should know? Oh, yeah. It's hard to narrow that to just three, but I will try. First, I would say, you know, it's important to know that many of these patients recover, but those at highest risk are those with severely depressed LV systolic function, dilated LVs, involved RVs, and those of African descent. Secondly, we often have more options than we think in medical management for heart failure through pregnancy and breastfeeding, but they do need some adjustments from our usual therapies, and patient counseling is so important. Third, starting discussions with patients about prognosis, monitoring, future pregnancies, and contraception needs to happen early and be ongoing. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Damp. Before we let you go, we wanted to ask, what makes your heart flutter about cardioobstetrics? <laughs> that is hilarious. So we all love cardiac physiology and layering the physiology of pregnancy on top of this, I just find so exciting. And, you know, most importantly, I feel it's such an honor to get to share such a special time of these patients' lives with them as we help navigate them through their pregnancies and beyond. Wow, Dr. Damp, I can't thank you enough for this wonderful discussion. You know, I'm taking so much away from this and it's going to be great for all of our listeners, whether or not they're cardio obstetricians or even cardiologists. But before we close, and while we have the fortune of your time and attention, Dr. Dam, I want to recognize the program director survey that you led with several of our previous collaborators and mentors, including Dr. Alex Ossian and Dr. Gabby Weisman. The survey looked into how training environments affect diversity and how program directors approach these critical issues. Your findings directly fed into our design for the Narratives in Cardiology series. Dan, do you mind put, pulling up the grant that we wrote to get support in our efforts to promote inclusion within cardiology and read to Dr. Dam the relevant section? I would love nothing more. Let me get to it. And I quote, cardiovascular fellowship program directors identified two principal obstacles to recruiting a diverse fellowship class, lack of qualified applicants, and the overall culture of cardiology. The perceived lack of qualified applicants is multifactorial. But one important contributing factor is that talented individuals do not choose to pursue careers in cardiovascular medicine. This is evidenced by the drop-off in proportion of women internal medicine residents versus general cardiology fellows by over 50%. A significant cohort is deciding not to pursue cardiology. This is an important target for intervention. The reasons, again, are likely multifactorial, but likely overlap with the second obstacle, the perceived culture of cardiology. This is unfortunate, but also a key target for meaningful intervention, end quote. Great. Thanks, Dan. Dr. Damp, both as a program director yourself and as the primary author for this important study, how do we address these obstacles and get more awesome people to join our ranks in the field? Thank you so much for bringing that up and for asking me. And I just want to say I really applaud the, this group, you guys, for what you're doing as far as creating a platform for discussing some of these obstacles and strategies that we can use to recruit and to change the culture of the field. 
I think that the approaches have to be multidimensional. And some of the ways that I think we can go about addressing these obstacles start with education. Education about the importance of a diverse cardiology workforce for our patients is really important for us as a field. And it's also really important for us as cardiologists to be open-minded and educate ourselves about aspects of our culture that may dissuade people from wanting to necessarily be a part of it. And it's important that we utilize recruitment strategies that emphasize broader achievement metrics than we may be used to doing historically that highlight existing diversity and then engage groups that are underrepresented in cardiology to explore us and kind of learn more about it as a field. And very importantly, I think we all have to make diversity and inclusion a priority in cardiology. One of the ways that we as program directors and faculty in general can do this is educating ourselves and our co-faculty about implicit bias and opening the dialogue within our programs about issues surrounding inclusion and diversity and ensuring that there's a place there that people can learn and share. I think we also have to get creative about mentoring. So mentoring may need to happen across institutions or regions. And then also not just thinking about mentoring fellows, but mentoring down into residencies, medical schools, or even earlier, again, to engage people that may be underrepresented in cardiology to explore us as a career opportunity. And then I think also it's just worth mentioning that as a field, we need to continue to work on family-friendly policies that will include more flexibility, more support for certain life stages, more support for certain groups and really learn from each other about success stories that people may have at different institutions. Well, Dr. Dam, just want to thank you for this incredibly important work that you're doing. And you know, your leadership and leadership of others in this area has been such a guiding light for us here at CardiNerd. So we'll definitely cheers to a more inclusive cardiology. Agree. Thank you so much. I think that's a wonderful way to wrap up. We learned so much here today, covered a ton of very important information. Dr. Dam, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. I know it's greatly appreciated by us and all of our listeners. And Agnes and Loie, thank you so much. Thank you for helping draft a wonderful script and for both of your time and energy. We're looking forward to the next episode of the series. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, 
and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? Because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of maternal mortality. For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilized what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to CardioB, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly to be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series, raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and women heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series.